Good morning. Last week, John preached to us on the first part of Luke's section on the Lord's Prayer, and we saw the grace of a transcendently holy God who calls His children to draw near to Him, changing our hearts, our purposes, and our capacities. And this morning, we pick up where we left off, really part two of the Lord's Prayer. And you'll remember that the disciples came to Jesus and asked Him, teach us how to pray. And Jesus delivers to them the Lord's Prayer in slightly different fashion than the account in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew, of course, records this teaching as part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, whereas Luke records Jesus' teaching on prayer on another occasion in a more private setting with His disciples. And these two instances of this prayer are substantially the same, and yet Luke adds some additional material which we'll look at together this morning. And we know that Luke's concern in this section of the gospel is to present us with a picture of discipleship. What does a disciple look like? A disciple has gospel love for his neighbor, as we saw a number of weeks ago. A disciple gives priority to resting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word, as we saw in the account of Mary and Martha. A disciple responds to hearing from God by communing with Him in prayer. But the question before us today is this. With what attitude, with what kind of disposition are we to pray? And so, to that, Jesus gives us some helpful pictures. Let's read Luke 11 through 15, which is printed on page 8 of your bulletin. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his shamelessness... He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Good Father, we ask now for the gift of Your Holy Spirit's illumination of Your Word as it is preached. Write Your Word on our hearts that we may be encouraged all the more to respond to Your voice. Through your Spirit, raise us into your presence, that from your mouth we may receive the truth which has the power to transform our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, it's a phenomenon that affects each of us, regardless of our employment status, our age, our wealth, our education level. 
this particular disease is most usually manifested in young husbands or teenage boys or maybe college students. By the way, welcome back, college students. We contract it from television shows or popular novels or even from politicians. And it can't be cured by balancing chemicals or even with much therapy. And if you are not careful, you will pass this disease on to your children with symptoms magnified tenfold. I'm talking, of course, about the disease of sarcasm. And even as I speak of it, you ought to know that if you were to ask my wife or my mother-in-law, they would tell you that I'm quite skilled in this dark art. John Heyman, a noted linguist, has said that sarcasm is practically the primary language of 21st century America. In fact, entire phrases have lost their meaning today for us. The last time someone told you, nice job, were they complimenting you? How about when they said this, aren't you special? Or how about when you shared something exciting that received the designation of big deal. Language experts have disagreed on why exactly we use sarcasm. Some have suggested that it's a form of a, perhaps a gentler insult. Parents, you can probably identify with this. You walk into your child's room after asking him to clean it a few hours ago, and you might say, wow, you've made a lot of progress. And others have suggested that the smug superiority of sarcasm is actually more hurtful than direct criticism. I'm not here today to give you a dissertation on sarcasm from a biblical perspective, but I think we could all admit that at some level, to some extent, it's self-protective. It reflects the impulse of Adam and Eve in the garden to cover themselves, masking the truth behind a thin layer of diversion. But no matter what we say about sarcasm's utility in our lives, it does illustrate this point. The attitude with which we say things matters. The disposition of our hearts when we approach our loved ones matters. Or at least we can admit that it changes the context in which our words are received. Perhaps you experienced that around your table this week. But I think that this is one of the reasons that Jesus answers the disciples' request here, not only by giving them some categories and forms for prayer, as we saw last week, but also by explaining to them the heart attitudes that accompany a disciple's prayer. Insincerity in prayer is a problem for all of us, isn't it? I mean, it's such a common thing. We begin with good intentions, and we drift off to thinking about our lost keys or the day's appointments. Or someone shares a problem with us, and you say, I'll pray for you. And what you really mean is, yeah, buddy, you think you've got problems? This is why the Puritans pass down to us these wise words on prayer. Pray until you pray. Meaning that it's, helpful, it's a helpful practice to pray long enough to get past some of our insincerities and our formalism. That when we begin to pray, we can often approach God with a sense of routine which could prohibit sincerity in our hearts. And the Puritans, recognizing this issue in all of us, would advise us to keep on praying. Pray until you pray. 
That's good advice. But more importantly, we need to be reminded of Jesus' teaching on the attitudes and dispositions of the heart that accompany a disciple's prayer. And perhaps we would be bold enough to ask for them. And so today we come to Jesus with the same question as the disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what we learn from the pictures in these verses is simply profound. That disciples can approach God boldly and persistently in prayer because he is a good father. The first picture we get in this little parable is of the shameless neighbor that we read a moment ago. Jesus presents his disciples which a, uh, he, he presents them with a scenario in which they are to imagine themselves between a rock and a hard place socially. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and ask for some food to feed a guest who has arrived on a journey? Now, put yourself in the first century mindset. There are no convenience stores, no Walmart, no 24-hour Starbucks, no Grubhub. People usually baked only enough bread for the day's needs. And so the dilemma is this. Do I risk offending my friend who has come on a journey and arrived late with nothing to set before him? Or do I risk offending my neighbor who might have some bread by waking him up in the middle of the night? Just a few weeks ago, Colin told us a story about Middle Eastern hospitality. Remember, he and the boys went to deliver some bunk beds and expected to drop them off and leave them there only to be met by a spread of every bit of food in the house. This is the sense of hospitality which our host in the story is obligated to. He must set before his guest something to eat. He's desperate. He has no choice but to find a way to provide for this one who has journeyed to stay with him. And yet you can understand the difficulty that this creates. Now I've got to go wake up my neighbor at midnight and he's got young kids and they all share a common sleeping area in this first century house. And I know if I go over there, I'm going to wake up his kids, I'm going to wake up his wife, I'm going to wake up his dog, and he's not going to like it. Alicia and I have been having some long nights of late, more Alicia than myself, but our children historically are not good sleepers And so we've recently hit a stage with Julia during which at about 7 p.m. she becomes inconsolable. That's the magical hour. And then from the time she's put down in her crib until the morning, there's no telling how many times she'll wake up and we'll have to go back in and get her to sleep. And I know some of you are telling me to try the cry it out method. We're working on it. But nevertheless, a few weeks ago, I was away at a session meeting and Alicia was left alone in the house with Julia and with our dog, Chewy. Some of you have met. Chewy's a puppy. And if that doesn't say enough, I'll just tell you that he is a very active one. And on this occasion, as Alicia was having a difficult time getting Julia to sleep, Chewy watched her do this strange dance all night. You know, many different things. The bounce technique or maybe the pacifier, or, you know, singing songs, any number of things to try to get her asleep. And after an evening of watching this, Chewy finally observed Alicia put Julia down in her crib, soundly asleep. And then, 
almost immediately, as if he had forgotten everything he just witnessed, he heard a leaf rustle outside or some small disturbance, and he started to bark. And of course, baby woke up, and mommy had to start all over. Now look, I'm not telling you that the neighbor in the story had a sleeping a barking dog, rather, but I am saying the effect is the same. If the host goes over and knocks on the door, everyone in the house is going to wake up, even the small children who it probably took a long time to get to sleep in the first place. It's an extreme inconvenience. So what in the world would, would cause our host to risk such a situation? His shameless boldness. Look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So what is it that induces the sleeping neighbor to get out of bed? It's not his friendship with the man. They're not that close. It's the man's utter shamelessness. Some of your translations will use the word impudence, which is Not one that we use in everyday conversation. It means lack of respect or proper modesty. Some translations use persistent, but that's not really found in the Greek meaning of this word. Shamelessness is the most helpful translation here. A shameless kind of boldness, or as one commentator calls it, nerve. The emphasis is on the nerve of this request. It is bold. It's shameless. And this is the first attitude with which Jesus encourages us to approach God in prayer. Earlier, the story of Abraham's intercession for Sodom was read to us. I think it illustrates this nerve, this shameless boldness well. Think about it. Abraham, on this occasion, draws near to God to ask him to spare the city. But God has already come down, as the text tells us, ready to wipe out this city in his just wrath toward its sins. And so Abraham, the man, stands before God as his wrath is ready to bubble over and be poured out. And he, Abraham, the man, petitions the holy God to save the city on account of 50 righteous people. But he doesn't stop there. He asks for just 45 and then 40 and then 35, and then 20, and then 10. And each time, Abraham rightly recognizes his place before God. Who am I but dust and ashes? Oh, let not the Lord be angry. He is recognizing the nerve with which he is presenting this request before God. Can you imagine the scene? And yet, this is the kind of nerve with which Jesus invites us to pray. A shameless boldness, an audacity that would dare to come before a holy God because He has invited us to. God is not like the reluctant neighbor who is awakened in the middle of the night. That's not the point here. Rather, He's a God who invites His disciples to approach His throne boldly through the one who taught them to pray. Jesus is not just our great teacher. He is the ground on which we stand boldly and shamelessly before God. 
And if our aim is sincerity in prayer, we must cultivate such a boldness. Now, where might we start with that? I saw a quote online a few weeks ago, which I think was a song lyric, and it read like this. I want to pray something I've never prayed before because I want to see something I've never seen. And for a lot of Christians, perhaps even for yourself, that's what it looks like to pray boldly. But a shameless boldness in prayer means much more than just a vague or even mystical request for God to show up or to move mountains. It's actually a wrestling with God himself, like Abraham did. Or perhaps like Job did when he cried, How long will you torment me? Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Or perhaps like David when he cried, Oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you don't answer. By night I find no rest, you seem silent. Or perhaps like Habakkuk when he cried, How long will I cry out to you for help and you will not hear? Will you do something about injustice? Or maybe like Paul when he was so bold as to ask For the Ephesians to be strengthened with power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith, that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. Or perhaps with Jesus, we could pray something so bold as, Your kingdom come. My point is simply this. The Bible is full of shameless boldness in prayer. Our tradition also is full of rich, bold prayers. John Knox, the founder of Presbyterianism, prayed, Give me Scotland or I die. That's bold. We don't need to look to our Instagram accounts to find bold prayers. God has inspired them for us in His Word, and they've been handed down for us as well in our rich praying tradition. And so, perhaps a good starting point for cultivating an attitude of shameless boldness in prayer is to survey some of the great prayers of the Bible and to pray them openly and honestly wrestling with God. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan pastor who wrote a commentary on the whole Bible, also wrote a manual called A Method for Prayer. I recommend it to you. In his introduction to this great work, he argues for the use of scriptural language in prayer. Not perfectly or or even all the time, but regularly. And he doesn't do it because he's a Puritan and Puritans are stodgy. Actually, Puritans are brilliant. But rather, he says that where the word is consistently taught in worship and the language of scripture used in prayer, this language in prayer will be most intelligible and therefore most sincere for lovers of God's Word. We are people of the book. Let's be bold prayers of the book. And when we embrace such a disposition, one of the chief offshoots of this boldness will also be persistence. I mentioned a moment ago that some translations insert persistence for shamelessness in verse 8. And that's because the Greek word for shamelessness only occurs once in the entire New Testament, right here in Luke 11. And one of the things that's driven some translators to add the concept of persistence explicitly is the nature of verses 9 and 10. Jesus literally says, keep on asking, 
Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Or more loosely, he presents these things as conditional imperatives. If you ask, and you should, you will receive. He calls for persistence in asking and seeking and knocking. Verse 10, For the one asking receives, and the one seeking finds, and to the one knocking it will be open. In grammatical terms, these are continuous Forms. They represent ongoing action. Clearly, persistence is in view here. In fact, persistence helps us to round out what it means to approach God with a shameless boldness. It's a disposition that keeps asking, keeps seeking, keeps knocking, despite the seeming incoherence of God's timing and plan. Jesus later illustrates this for us in the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Remember this woman who went to a a corrupt judge and persistently asked for justice against her adversary. And what was it that finally swayed the corrupt judge? It was her persistence. And so if this is how a wicked judge behaves, how much more will a holy and loving God respond to the persistent petitions of his people. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Maybe we could modernize it. Parents, this illustration would be helpful to you, perhaps, if you, fallen parents, will finally give in to your child's request for a fourth bathroom stop on the way back from grandma's on Thanksgiving. How much more will a holy God respond to the persistence of his people? Now, this brings up a theological question, doesn't it? Are you telling me that my persistence in prayer will cause God to respond? Does God, who is all-powerful, actually respond to the persistence of his people in prayer? Yes. Yes, he does. St. Augustine, in the year 412, wrote a letter to a friend of his who had become a widow at a very young age. In a short time after the death of her husband, she witnessed the sacking of Rome in 410, and she was forced to flee with her granddaughter to Africa, where they met Augustine. And sometime after their meeting, this widow wrote Augustine because she was afraid that she wasn't praying as she should, and so she wrote to this great theologian, to to ask for his help. And he responded to this young widow on this request. And in that letter, he addressed this very question, this theological conundrum that we find ourselves in. He says, The call to pray to a sovereign God who, before we ask him, knows what things we have need of, might perplex our minds if we did not understand that the Lord our God requires us to ask not so that our, our wish may be made known to him, but in order that by prayer there may be exercised in us that desire by which we may receive what he prepares to bestow. In other words, why pray? Because it is in persistent, fervent, sincere prayer that God in his grace prepares and purifies our hearts for those things which he desires to give us. At the end of his letter, Augustine encourages his friend in her widowhood to dedicate herself to persistent prayer. He writes, Now what makes this work of 
prayer specially suitable to widows, but their bereaved and desolate condition. Whosoever then understands that he is in this world bereaved and desolate as long as he is a pilgrim absent from his Lord, is careful to commit his widowhood, so to speak, to his God as a shield in continual and most fervent prayer. And then catch this. Pray, therefore, as a widow of Christ, not yet seeing him whose help you implore. Pray, therefore, as a widow of Christ, not yet seeing him whose help you implore. Does this answer the question of the mechanics of how it is that a sovereign God responds to our prayers? No. It actually gives us something far more beautiful than that. It calls us into a dance with the God of the universe, whereby in our desolation we petition Him persistently and He in His grace through that persistence reminds us that though we don't yet see Him, He is near. He hears us. He will respond to His people. What is it that makes you feel most widowed, most desolate, For my family, it's the longing that we feel for our son and our continued grief over his untimely death. And therefore, we persistently pray along with each of you at the close of our worship service every week, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maybe for your family, it's a persistent longing for healing from a disease or from for reconciliation from a broken relationship or for the restoration of a wayward child or for the provision of work or for hope when you feel hopeless, what is it that makes you feel most widowed in this world? Pray, therefore, as a widow of Christ, not yet seeing him whose help you implore. And pray not only as a bereaved widow, but as an adopted child of a loving father. Why is it that we can pray to God with bold shamelessness and with desperate persistence? It's because He's a good Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In other words, it's absurd to think that even an earthly father would deal treacherously in response to his children. How much more then will God deal graciously and lovingly with us? This is the relational, the the existential basis for shameless, persistent prayer. We can approach God in these ways because He is our good Father. I've found over the past few years the last several questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which explain and illuminate the Lord's Prayer to be very helpful in, in times of personal prayer. The first question in that section is question 100, which was part of our liturgy earlier. What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? 
The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father able and ready to help us. Last December, I was able to preach at one of our Vespers services on the topic of our true longing for home. And I admitted in that short homily that the most at home that I have ever felt in my life has been when my sweet son began walking and then soon after running. Because every day when I would get home from work, Henry would hear the garage door open and he would anticipate my entrance with joy. And as soon as I stepped in the door, just about every day, he would come running around the corner, screaming as you heard him do on Sunday mornings with joy and, and running into my arms. And I think this might be the thing that I miss most, the simple joy of a boy running to his father. And so when I pray, Father in heaven, one of my constant prayers is that the Lord would grant me the joy I need to draw near to him like Henry did. Henry drew near to me in that way because he had every reason to expect to be received. And so do we. Because of Christ who stood in our place condemned. Christ, our older brother, who presents us before the presence of the Father's glory with great joy. As John reminded us last week, to call God our good Father does not mean to approach Him flippantly. It doesn't mean that Jesus is our homeboy or the Father is our homeboy. But it does mean that this utterly transcendent God creator and sustainer of all things, has drawn us near to himself through Jesus and that he as our good father delights to give us more and more of himself. On this occasion, Luke records Jesus telling us that God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, How much more will your heavenly Father give good things? Now, of course, these two things are complementary. The Spirit is the source of all good gifts that the Father would give to His children. But I think Luke has good reason here to highlight this particular gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, when Peter is addressing the crowd at Pentecost, the crowd is cut to the heart, and Luke tells us there that they ask Peter what to do in response to this. And what does Peter say? We read it earlier, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same Peter who sat at Jesus' feet and heard him teach on this good gift from our Heavenly Father and who heard Jesus teach about his own death and ascension and the sending of the great helper which would be better for the disciples and who had been breathed on by Jesus after his resurrection in order to receive the Holy Spirit as the source for power for his apostolic mission, that same Peter now recognizes at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit is the great redemptive historical gift from God the Father. That is, the Spirit is the down payment or deposit that God's people receive in this age 
to guarantee our full inheritance in the next. It's the Spirit who enables disciples to pray like widows of Christ who, though they have not seen Him, believe in Him. It's the Spirit who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, and thereby approach God accordingly in prayer. It's the Spirit who, when we, like Martha, are more concerned with good things, it's the Spirit that reminds us to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear from Him. When we're confronted with the great cost of following Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our rich inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And when we, like the lawyer in the Good Samaritan account, are confronted with the anxieties of what we must do to inherit the kingdom of heaven, the Holy Spirit reminds us that we have already entered God's rest. And therefore, we are free to love our neighbors without seeking to justify ourselves in doing so. The Holy Spirit is the great already that reminds us to anticipate the great not yet. He's the greatest of all good gifts, for He tethers us to the reality of the age to come when heaven and earth will unite and God's kingdom rule will be realized fully to the ends of the earth. And in the meantime, He calls us to cry out to our good Father for that day in increasing measure. But what about today? What about tomorrow? What about Wednesday when I've got kids' soccer practice or a board meeting and my iPhone is telling me that I've got 467 unopened emails? This call to prayer, I think, is it can seem a bit daunting because of the busyness of our schedules or our general distractedness or or maybe our inability to disconnect and And to that, we could emphasize the advice of the Puritans, pray until you pray. It's good advice. But more than that, pray with the faith to believe that your good Father longs to give you more of Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, testifying to your adoption and tethering you to the realities of your glorious future. And therefore, pray boldly and shamelessly for more of this good gift in the midst of your busyness. When the day comes on which it seems like you have prayed and prayed for God to remove from you your desolation and yet He has remained silent, pray persistently. Keep asking. Keep knocking. God is purifying you in persistent prayer. And when it seems that your requests have not only been ignored, but flat out denied, keep praying to your good Father, who longs for you to run to Him as a child to a Father, able and ready to help. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Great Father, would you give us boldness and persistence, and would you remind us by your Holy Spirit of your goodness to us, your goodness as our good Father who longs to give us more and more of yourself. And would you help us each day and each week to pray with such a boldness through Christ and by his name we pray. Amen.